All right. Why don't you turn to Zechariah chapter 9, please. Zechariah chapter 9. We're going to look at the whole 17 verses. The message is entitled, God's Prophetic Schedule. Professor M. Montiero Williams, comparing the Bible to other books, said, Pile them, if you will, on the left side of your study. But place your own Holy Bible on the right side all by itself, alone. There is a gulf between it and all the so-called books of these, which severs the one from the other utterly, hopelessly, and forever. It's amazing the amount of proof that the Bible gives to us, not only prophetically, historically, archaeologically, and that people still do not believe the Bible. So the problem really is not an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. It's because there is no option for God in people's lives, regardless of the evidence. So I want to speak to you on Zechariah's revelation about the preparation of God for the coming of the Messiah. And it involves three very important prophecies here in chapter 9. Let me read our text and then we'll divide it up. 9.1, it says, The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, uh, its resting place, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, um, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre builds herself a tower, heaps up silver like the dust, and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her down. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ascalon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful, and Akron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ascalon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off all the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God and shall be like a leader of Judah and Ekron, like a Jebusite. I will uh, camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today, I declare that I will restore double to you, for I have been Judah, my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Then the Lord will, um, will be seen over them, and his arrows will go forth like lightning. The Lord will um, blow the trumpet and go with a whirlwind from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord your God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown, 
lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is its goodness, and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive, a new wine, the young women. The revelation of Zechariah and preparation of God for the coming Messiah involves three very important prophecies. This is the chronological order of history. Okay, this is after the Babylon captivity. We're picking up from there. And it consists of these three prophecies. First, we have the castigation of the enemies of Israel, verse 1 through 8. Secondly, we have the declaration of the coming Messiah of Israel in verse 9 and 10. And thirdly, the restoration of the people of Israel, verse 11 through 17. The castigation of the enemies of Israel comes first. This is the period we are in terms of the end of Babylonian captivity. Notice um, verse 1 and 2. The prophet Zechariah revealed God was going to judge certain cities in Syria. So God is not afraid to name specific names because he cannot lie. He knows everything. The prophecy introduced, is introduced as the burden of the word of the Lord. Notice in verse 1, the word burden means um, uh, oracle of judgment. Uh, the idea is a, something weighty to be carried and lifted up, indicating the lifting up of one's voice to proclaim the oracle of judgment. The remaining six chapters of Zechariah are divided into two burden judgments. The first one is right here. The burden against the enemies of Israel, chapter 9, 10, and 11. And then the second judgment comes in chapter 12, verse 1, judgments against Israel herself, all the way to the end. Now, the visions are over. These are just prophecies. Now, the source of the judgment, notice, is the word of the Lord. We run across this all the time. The source of the judgment is the word of Yahweh here. Um, the words given to the prophet directly from God, from heaven, and the word of the Lord here, the title of Yahweh, the covenant God, directly from him. Um, the prophecy notice in verse 1 and 2 there uh, of judgment is directed against three particular cities in Syria. The first city is uh, Hadrach, and it means dwelling, uh, and it's in the north of Israel, over in Syria, modern day Lebanon. Um, the exact location is not known, but without doubt it is the same vicinity of the other two that are going to be mentioned here. The second is Damascus. Um, it means silence of the sackcloth weaver. This is the capital of Syria and always has been and still is. Uh, we one year went up to all the way to Damascus. We had to go across Jordan and then over that way back in the late 70s. Um, I wouldn't recommend you go there today, but um, interesting. Um, the location is in the plain uh, coast of Hermon about 130 miles north of Jerusalem. And uh, the name Damascus appears uh, 40 times in the Old Testament, 15 in the New. As you know, the most uh, named city is Jerusalem. The second is Babylon in the Bible. Notice there's two commentaries that are stated here in verse 1. The first is its resting place, probably referring to the city of Hadrach, depending on, on Damascus for security and protection since it's the capital. And the second is, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord Yahweh. It refers to Israel and the Gentile nation's attention fixed on Alexander the Great. This is the period of history we're in. As he was conquering the world. They're all in a maze. Babylon is destroyed. Medo-Persia. Now it's Greece. 
Remember, God gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream of the future world empires. Babylon, the head of gold, Medo-Persia, the arms and chests of silver had fallen. Greece was now on the forefront. It was ruling, but would soon be conquered by Rome. There was no expectation of God to begin to act by the heathen, but yet the people of God were seeing the ramifications of all of a sudden empire falling after empire, just the way God had predicted through Daniel. Amazing. The evidence is all there for every generation. Now, the third city, Hamath, uh, means fortress, and the city was located in the upper Syria again, in the valley of the Orontes, bordering Damascus, it tells us, in other words, of close proximity. And the judgment is because um, of their evil towards Israel. It's always the reason why God acts. But also, this territory was promised to Abraham by God. If you look at the promise of God in Genesis 15:18, Exodus 23:31, and many other passages, and you look at the parameters of the land given to Abraham, Lebanon and Syria, much of that is, 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 is promised to Abraham. That's Israel territory, but it never came under its, its, its control. Solomon, even at the vast, has never conquered all the land that God gave him. But it's going to be theirs in the Millennial Kingdom. Some people don't like that, but that's just tough luck. Um, notice uh, in verse 2 still, the prophet uh, Zechariah revealed God was going to judge certain um, Syrophoenician cities. So he's working his, his way from um, the, uh, the northern region now out to the, to the west, to the coast. And the judgment of God would come upon Tyre and Sidon. These two are always mentioned together, very important. Though they are very wise. You know, there are people who think they're so wise, they're wiser than God, but it's just a matter of time before they find out their wisdom is really stupidity. Uh, what's called wisdom today, that inventions and medicines and everything tomorrow, they, they're poisoning us and destroying us. Amazing. The name Tyre means rock, fortress or citadel on the Mediterranean coast, again north of Israel. And Tyre was known for being master mariners, as you know, shipbuilders, traders of commerce with the nations, and with the cities of Syria and the world. Uh, Ezekiel 27, when we studied, David tells much about that. The name Sidon means hunting, and it's north of Tyre, uh, closely um, uh, associated with it. In fact, Ezekiel 27a says, Inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your oarsmen, your wise men, O Tyre, were in you. They became your pilots. And if you look at that whole chapter, it speaks of their wealth and their popularity and their demand and, and their mercenaries. Everybody wanted to be there. It was like the, uh, the capital of all the money-making and the luxury and everything. The judgment of God on the city of Tyre is singled out, notice, in verse 3. Due to its prideful confidence of her security and wealth. This is always a failure on man's part. For God said, for Tyre builds herself a tower, a massive wall, 150 feet high, above, uh, about a half a mile out from the mainland to the island city. Um, it heaped up silver like dust, it says, gold like mire in the streets here. Their wealth was immense. The expression indicates that silver and gold were as common and abundant as dust and mud. You read about Solomon that all of his drinking vessels were of gold and of silver. Amazing. 
Notice the judgment of God would be fulfilled in spite of the security and wealth. In verse 4, Zechariah declares, Behold, an expression calling a person to pay attention. In spite of what I said, how powerful and rich she is. Pay close attention. With God, that doesn't matter. You know what God does with gold? He paves streets. <laughs> regardless of her seeming safety and security, regardless of her immense wealth, Zachariah declared, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea and she will be devoured by fire. History confirms this. Tyre was besieged by Shalmaneser for five years and then by Nebuchadnezzar 13 years without conquest. As he was there for 13 years, slowly they moved all the money, all the stuff to an island city half a mile out from inland and robbed him of his victory. But the prophecy was short-term and long-term. Short-term, Nebuchadnezzar. Long-term, Alexander the Great. He seized it for seven months. He scraped all the debris of the inland city that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. And he dumped it into the sea and built a causeway out to the island. And destroyed it and burned it. What are the chances of that happening? <laughs> there aren't enough zeros after a one, ladies and gentlemen. Ezekiel 26 gives you all the details. We did that when we went through Ezekiel. Now notice in verse 5 through 7, the prophet Zechariah revealed then God was going to judge certain cities of the Philistines. Now he's worked up north, Syria, moved to the east. Now he's working down south, the Philistine country. By the way, same place that troubles always for Israel, Gaza Strip. No different. Zechariah revealed Ashkelon would be petrified witnessing the destruction of Sidon entire by Alexander the Great. You can imagine their hearing. Maybe someone escaped and came and told him. Ashkelon shall see it and fear, petrified. They knew they could not stand against Alexander the Great. They knew they would perish. Zechariah revealed Gaza would be in travail. Gaza also should be very sorrowful. It means to wait anxiously, waiting, knowing their sure destruction. Nothing they could do. Zechariah revealed Ekron next. Realized their financial commerce was gone. Listen to the words. For he dried up her expectation. The Philistines constantly traded with Tyre. Jeremiah speaks about it. The pronoun he is capitalized. That's because it is God who is doing this. She boasted in her strength, her wealth. Would you have believed that they told you the day before the Twin Towers came down that one day those buildings would come down like pancakes? Oh, no. No one's ever built buildings like that. Okay. Hmm. Listen to Jeremiah 47.4. Because of the day that comes to plunder all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper who remains. For the Lord Yahweh shall plunder the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Kephtur, 
the origin of the Philistines is marked back in Genesis. Notice Zechariah next revealed the head ruler of Gaza would be killed. The king shall perish from Gaza. They would be conquered. They would cease as a people. Zechariah then revealed Ashkelon would be abandoned. She'll have no inhabitants. They will not be inhabited. All of this was fulfilled by Alexander the Great as he worked his way from the north to the south, even going down to Egypt. We don't get Egypt here, but Jeremiah picks it up. Isaiah picks it up. Devastated. Alexander died at 33 years of age after a drunken party and he walked home in the rain and caught pneumonia. And he's a masterful general. No one ever has been like him. Great following, loyalty to him. Began with a small army, about 50,000. He couldn't leave anything behind. He just decimated every place he went so no one could come up behind him from the rear. And just conquered everything. And at 33, he celebrated and he died. Interesting parallel here. We'll get to it. Alexander died at 33. So did Jesus Christ. What a contrast between the two. One admired by the world. The other one rejected by the world. One taking life. The other one giving life. Just some of the contrasts. Interesting. Zechariah revealed the inhabitants of Ashdod. It would be a people of low class. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. The phrase mixed race can mean illegitimate children or intermixed marriages, depending on the context. The old King James Version translates it a bastard, a child born of parents not married. In other words, even in that day, it was marked as not appropriate. Next, Zechariah revealed God would put an end to the paganism and kingship of the Philistines, verse 7. Now, all these, all these detailed itemized things, they came to pass. It can be verified. The evidence is all over. He will take away the idolaters' worship. Listen, I will take away the blood from the mouth and the abomination from between their teeth. This is their idol worship of blood sacrifice and all the debauched things they did that God hated. God would assimilate the surviving Philistines into Israel. Listen, but he who remains of the Philistines, even he shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Akron like a Jebusite. He's referring to the days of David when the Jebusite came under the control of Israel and they assimilated into the nation. You know, um, there were many mercenaries that came on to David. Loyalty to Israel. Notice the prophet Zechariah in verse 8. Now, all of a sudden, it's been dark and, man, there's judgment. All of a sudden, there's a turnaround. The prophet Zechariah reveals that God was going to spare the city of Jerusalem. In the midst of all this stuff, Alexander the Great's coming down, destroying everything. And this one city he's going to leave alone. God will protect it. I will camp around my house because of the army. My house. Remember Haggai said, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build a temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord in Haggai 1.8. Remember Haggai and Zechariah are like peanut butter and jam. They're prophesying together. 
The remnants come back. Haggai again declares, So the angel who spoke to me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. Zechariah 1.14 God was now working on behalf of Israel once again. God gives the reason, notice, in 8. Because of him who passes by and him who returns. Alexander is the person indicated here. He first went down to Egypt, coming from the north, down from Syria. Fire Phoenician, down to Egypt. His conquest, then he went back up to Jerusalem. He did not destroy Jerusalem on the way down or the way up. That's what's referred to here. God would not allow it. No more shall an oppressor pass through them. The oppressor being Alexander the Great. The them are the Jews. Notice God affirmed this. For now I have seen with my eyes. Alexander had a vision that a man coming uh, came out to meet him who knew the living God. He had a vision. And as he approached Jerusalem, the high priest came out to meet Alexander and showed him the book of Daniel, Jerome tells us, how God had prophesied he would be a world empire. He went in, did sacrifice, and spared Jerusalem. I said God is in preparation for the coming Messiah. Alexander permeated the, the world with the Greek language. When Rome absorbed Greece, they absorbed the Greek language that was prepared for the writing of the New Testament and the rose for the gospel to be taken. God's on the throne. He's not biting his nails. He's right on schedule. Dr. Stoner in the book... Science Speaks on page 70 to 80 estimated the chances of Tyre that also is mentioned by Ezekiel having spoken that prophecy and all the details that it would be um, about 1 in 75 million or 1 in 7.5 times 10 to the 7th power for all things to come to pass or to be true. Now if you're a mathematician you know that's a lot of numbers. So those who say, well, the Bible, no, well, you, is a better statement. Our governor just called us uh, freeloaders for grumping against the tax and the registration. Let's turn it around. Let's say he's a thief. That's better. You see, it's a matter of perspective, isn't it? The Bible is accurate. The Bible is God's word. Your words are not relevant to God. They're unimportant. You agree with God. He does not agree with you. 20% of the Bible, one-fifth, is prophecy. No other book in the world claims to have prophecy directly from God. No other book has prophecies verified through history, archaeology, like the Bible. Second Peter 1, 19-21 says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. He's talking about the Old Testament. Until the day draws, dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation, the word interpretation means of no impulse, private impulse or origin. 
And now it explains it. Listen. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. The men didn't say, well, you know, I think I'll write a book today. I think I'll just say a prophecy. No. They were normal people like you and I, but called from God, prophets, and then God's Spirit came upon them and imparted to them the revelation. Wow. The detailed particulars are verifiable again by history. Leading empires of the world revealed Nebuchadnezzar's dream came true. A head of gold, Babylon, Medo-Persia, the arms and chests of silver, the belly of brass, Greece, the legs of iron, Rome. Now, what would make you and I think that if that's the case, that the empire of the Antichrist is not going to take place? The prophecy named Cyrus to overthrow Babylon through the levy gates, punishing Babylon in 45, Isaiah 45, 1 through 3. Listen to Jeremiah. He says that, 25, 12. Then it, uh, it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. You know how incredible Babylon was. It doesn't matter. So this was the castigation of the enemies of Israel that were the next thing on the agenda, God's schedule in preparation of the coming Messiah. Secondly, notice verse 9 and 10, the declaration of the coming Messiah of Israel. In verse 9, the prophecy here, the prophet Zechariah revealed the first coming of the Messiah. And this verse in Zechariah is quoted by Matthew, as you know, Matthew 21, verse 4 through 5, what is traditionally called the triumphal entry. The so-called triumphal entry was not from the earthly perspective, though, but from the heavenly perspective. Jesus came in his first coming to judge the sins of the world upon his own person. Second Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus came to make the only way by which a sinner can be forgiven of his or her sins and be one with God. First John 2.2 2. And God made him to be the propitiation for our sins, not ours alone, the believer, but the whole world. Wow. The entrance of Jesus to Jerusalem was more like the tragic rejection. The multitude of disciples and the whole multitude praised God, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, in Luke 19, 37 and 38. The Pharisees called out from the crowds, Teacher! Rebuke your disciples, Jesus said, if they should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out, Luke 19, 39 and 40. Jesus then rejected the nation for not recognizing the prophetic day of their Messiah. Listen, now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. He did. He wasn't angry, he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, Especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace. But now, they are hidden from your eyes. Luke 19, 41, 42. Matthew, he said, you shall not see me henceforth. You say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the end of the tribulation period. Wow. Broken hearted. They had no excuse. They had the scriptures. They had the day. 
A careful comparison of this verse in Zechariah with Matthew will show he quoted only the fulfillment of the first coming. Matthew didn't quote, rejoice greatly, nor he is just in having salvation. This will be fulfilled in the second coming. Verse 9 of Zechariah contains both the first and the second coming mixed together without distinguishing them short-term and long-term, as we see often, like Isaiah 61 through 3, where Jesus went to the synagogue at Nazareth and proclaimed the fulfillment of Isaiah, stopped right in the middle of the verse, closed the book, or rolled it up, because of the first and second coming. He just put them together. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and quoted the prophecy of Joel without dividing the first coming at Pentecost and the second fulfillment at the second coming. Runs them together. Matthew quotes the character of his person. Notice who he was. Tell the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. What he was, lowly and sitting on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Kings rode on donkeys for peace. Horses were for war. In the context of Zechariah, Jesus The king of the Jews was lowly in contrast to proud Alexander the Great. No coincidence here in in chapter 9. They're both together. No coincidence at all. The amazing prophecy of Daniel was fulfilled of 483 years to the day, or 170,880 days um, from March 14, 445 B.C., our exorcists gave the command to Nehemiah to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. If you project that to April the 6th, 32 AD, it fits exactly. Daniel 9, 24 through 26. To the day, that's why he says, if you would have known this, your day. God gave them the date, and they missed it. Look at verse 10. The prophet Zechariah revealed the second coming of Messiah. God will intervene and defend Israel and Jerusalem against her enemies right at the end of the Great Tribulation and in the Battle of Armageddon. The entire nation is uh, indicated. Notice, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. Ephraim is used for the whole of the ten northern tribes, Israel. Jerusalem represents Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom. You have northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Now, now, Herbert W. Armstrong here in Pasadena in the past uh, used to teach about the lost tribes of Israel. And he said that somebody took the descendant of David and took him to Britain. And therefore, you know, Ish is man, British. And he went on and all that. And as Pastor Chuck used to say, foolish. And, you know, it's just people come up with some incredible junk and people follow. Because they don't study the scriptures. They get deceived. Now... The victory is guaranteed, notice, in 10. The battle bowl shall be cut off. The enemies will be defeated. The victory will be God's. Listen to Haggai 2.22. 
I will overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride on them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. God is telling the end result of the battle before the battle, and it's as sure as the battle was going on. He lives in the eternal present. Then notice God shall establish the kingdom age. There at the end of verse 10, the world peace that has never been accomplished will be established by Jesus. He shall speak peace to the nations. Just like the he is capitalized before, it's God's hand upon this. So here, not the worthless league of nations or the corrupt united nations, united nothings. They haven't brought any peace. They bring more destruction. And all they do is consume our money. Isaiah speaks of the kingdom age. Listen to him in Isaiah 2.4. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hoods. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. That's the millennial kingdom, ladies and gentlemen. Isaiah chapter 2. Many other chapters. Now the United Nations has this as a plaque. What a joke. What an insult to God. That's the millennial kingdom. They're not going to do this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. There will be no peace, ladies and gentlemen, in the United States, in Mexico, in Burbank, Bowen Park, or the world until Jesus Christ comes back. We may experience some periods of peace, but that's only while they're preparing for the next war. If man is good, I don't know where they're getting the evidence. The world authority and power will be by and through Jesus. Notice his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the millennial kingdom. The sea to sea is the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea. Those are the two seas in the land of Israel. Because Israel will be the capital of the world, religious and political. Some people don't like that, but that's just tough. The river refers to the Euphrates rivers. And it says in the entire earth. Everything. The previews given to us in Psalm 2. Listen. I will declare the degree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give to you the nations for your inheritance. Many churches use this for the missionaries. Out of context. This is the father giving the son the nations the millennial kingdom. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He will rule supreme. Isaiah 9, 7 again. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, will perform this. Wow. You know, since the time of the birth of Jesus, the era 
has been called A.D., representing this uh, a specified year of the Christian era. Medieval Latin, Anno, in the year of plus Domini, genitive of Dom, Dominius. Lord, the year of the Lord. Now, it's being called C.E., the common era. The revisionist of our incredible stupid educational institutions demand every evidence of Jesus to be erased from our lexicons. The plan began in 1900. It's taken them a hundred years to do. And they've accomplished it. The most anti-American, anti-constitutional, anti-liberty are the universities in our nation. Amazing. The Trojan horse to America. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies, ladies and gentlemen, his first coming. The manner of his birth, the place of his birth, the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, the manner of his death plus his resurrection, the evidence is all over. It's whether we believe the evidence or not. Uh, Peter, speaking to those in the temple with John in Acts 3, 22 through 24, said, uh, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, meaning Jesus Christ. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear the prophet will be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who followed, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. There's no contradiction among the prophets. They all agree. Now remember, when he's talking, he's talking about all the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't put together. But now we can put the New Testament side by side, and the New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament. It interprets the Old Testament, clearly. Jesus declared the detailed destruction of the city of Jerusalem by Titus in 70 AD, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. The destruction of the city, the dismantling of the temple, not one stone left upon another. That's quite specific. The slaughter of the Jews, the scattering of them throughout the world. The rebirth of the new nation of Israel. Once again, all of these are verified. Zechariah is speaking about 400 years before the coming of Christ. We're 2,500 years the road down here. We have all the evidence behind us. John 5.43 tells us, Jesus speaking, I have come in my Father's name and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, the Antichrist, him you will receive. Ooh. This was the declaration of the coming Messiah. Of Israel. Notice third and last comes the restoration of the people of Israel, verse 11 through 17. 11 through 13, the prophet Zechariah revealed the basis for God acting. It was a covenant that he had. God encouraged the people to return to Zion. The captivity was over. Listen to his words. The blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. God would um, show himself favorable and gracious due to the covenant, the blood of your covenant. 
At Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with the nation, as you know. Moses said in Exodus 24, 8, uh, he took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord Yahweh has made with you according to all these words. And he read the curses, the blessings, they agreed with him. Wow. God had brought the seventh-year captivity to an end. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. The word prisoners refers to the, their captive bondage under God's punishment for their unfaithfulness. It was over. The water pit refers to the horrible suffering and oppression under the hand of Babylon. Jeremiah says, 25, 11, In this whole land shall be desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. History records it exactly. Jeremiah again says, Then it will come to pass that when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. Jeremiah 25, 12. What are the chances of all that stuff coming to pass exactly? Only that God is not speaking, but he is. Look at verse 12. God encouraged the captives to return under his protection. This is all was speaking before of the, that 400-year period in here, with the Maccabean period, okay? The city of Jerusalem returned to the stronghold. Your prisoners of hope. That's what's being identified here, Jerusalem. That's the stronghold. Place of safety, the place of, of future hope. The people would be restored to a favorable condition with God. Listen to his words. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. I declare I will restore. The authority is based upon the word of God. The meaning of restored double to you. To you and I, it means nothing. To the Hebrew, it was a glorious, glorious message. It indicated a complete and full restoration. That same expression is used in Isaiah 40, verse 2. It says, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord Yahweh's hand double for her sins. In other words, here's your sins and here's the payment. Double, completely reconciled. This was good news to them, see? Notice in 13, God encouraged them, the people returning to the land by saying that he was going to help them to defeat the forces of Greece. This is, again, during the 400 years of silence between Malachi and John the Baptist, the intertestamental period. God presented himself as the warrior, don't miss this, as he fights for Israel through his people as his weapons to stand against and defeat the enemy. Judah would be his bow. Listen to his words. For I have bent Judah my bow. The word bent literally means to tread. And I was trying to figure out where I'm looking all around and all that. It's because when you string your bow, you put your foot on the bow and bend it to string it. Wow. He's using his own people, Ephraim. And here, 
Judah as the bow. Then Ephraim would be his arrow. Listen, fitted the, fitted the bow with Ephraim. <laughs> He's personifying his people as his weapons. Both in the prophetic perfect for the future. But notice express as already fulfilled. I have. It says twice. When God says something's going to happen, it's as good as happened. Yet when he prophesies something to happen, he never forces people to do the evil. He only knows that people will do the evil. God doesn't force people to do the good. He knows the good they will do. But none of that keeps him from being to predict accurate things of the future. For him, it's no problem. Notice God identified the enemy as those of the successors after the death of Alexander. Verse 13 there at the end, God gathered and indicated his own army. He inducted here his own army of Israelites to fight the Syrio-Grecians and raised up your sons, O Zion, identify against your sons, O Greece, Alexander. And all his generals, Cassanders and Silomachus and the Ptolemies, and you had the wars of the Ptolemies and the, and the, um, um, it'll come to me, the Ptolemies and something else, I forget. But they're the north and the south that they fight. And, um, and just exactly, and history confirms all this. Amazing. God declared the victory as already done, the Ptolemies. Now, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. This mighty man. So Alexander the Great. All these guys that follow him. God helped the Macedonians against Antiochus Epiphany. Very clear in scripture. A type of the Antichrist. Daniel tells us that in chapter 8 verse 9 through 14. In chapter 11 verse 32. We studied that when we were there with Daniel. Daniel prophesied about the Antiochus failed attempt to take the city of Alexandria and Rome forced him to leave or die. And so he vented his anger on the way back with and polluted the sanctuary of, the, of Jerusalem aided by apostate Jews. He makes this clear in Daniel eleven twenty nine through 30. And he slaughtered a pig on the altar and forced the flesh of pigs down the throats of the priests and slurred it. All over the sanctuary. He took away the daily sacrifice. Placed a statue of Zeus in the temple. The abomination that makes desolation. That Daniel spoke about. And also is recorded in the Maccabees. First Maccabees 1, 2 and 3. The Maccabees defeated him. And rededicated the temple. Miraculously God provided the oil for the lambs. The eight days. Dedicating the temple after purifying it in December the 25th, 165 B.C. What's commonly known as the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah. The only unbiblical feast plus Purim. Two unbiblical feasts. They're historical feasts. Wow. Now notice verse 14 and 15. The prophet Zechariah revealed the battle and victory by the hand of God. So all this stuff I'm talking about can be verified. The battle is described by many metaphors of war. God will be fighting for them. God will be their commander. Then the Lord Yahweh will be seen over them. That's always encouraging. 
When your coach leads you or your boss leads your son, when the Israeli army is going to battle, is there officers that lead the charge? Different than the rest of the armies of the world. Wow. God will strike quickly and not miss, and his arrows will go forth like lightning. God will lead the charge. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with the whirlwinds from the south. Notice in 15, the victory is declared in detail and certain. Their captain of the armies of heaven will protect them. The Lord of hosts will defend them. 54 times in the book, the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. The Jews would be the weapons of God. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. In other words, they will be the victors in this slaughter, this battle. The victory is vividly described by the emphasis of repeated phrases, shall devour, subdue, and fill with blood, all in favor of Israel. This is identifying the Maccabean period that can be verified historically, ladies and gentlemen. Notice verse 16 and 17, the prophet Zechariah revealed promise of salvation and blessing. In 16, the blessing of salvation, not mere deliverance. He's dealt with the deliverance. Yahweh would reconcile the adulterous wife. The Lord Yahweh, their God, will save them in that day. The focus is salvation. The phrase that day is used from chapter 12, 13, and 14 to indicate the final and complete restoration of the remnant of Israel in the last days of the great tribulation and the second coming. Right here, our context refers to the Maccabean period. After this, it will be exclusively for the last days of the Great Tribulation and the Battle of Armageddon. Notice God was also now used the other metaphor of a shepherd, their shepherd watching out for them as the flock of his people. A very common metaphor of a pastor, of those feeding and teaching God the word of God. Psalm 103 says, Know that the Lord Yahweh, he has God. It is he who has made us, not we ourselves. We are the people and the sheep of his pasture. God would value them also, notice, as precious, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown. The word for crown, Nasser, is the same for the mitre of the high priest, the crown. God would honor them, lifted like a banner over his head in joyous oneness of God with his people once again. Wow. Look at 17. Then comes the blessing and its earthly blessing to Israel. The blessing is celebrated in fulfillment for how great is the goodness and how great its beauty the return not only to the land, but to the God. Remember Haggai, first chapter? You return to the land, but not to me. God wants the two together. The people in the land go together, peanut butter and jelly. But the land is not all. They got to come back and be one with God. 
We don't see that yet. It will happen. They were looking to him again at this point in history. The material blessing is from God. Mark it well. Grain shall make the young man thrive and the new wine the young woman. Listen to Haggai 2.18 and 19. He says, Consider now from the day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider it. Is the sea still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. Mark it well, I'm going to bless you, material blessing. The nation of Israel is promised earthly blessings and an earthly kingdom. The church is promised spiritual blessing and a spiritual kingdom, Ephesians 1, 3. Do not confuse them. We're not looking for an earthly kingdom. We're not looking for earthly blessings. Two distinct things. The UN has scheduled classes with a clear vision consisting of three E's as we're walking down this chronological time to the one world government. Environment is the first T, which focuses on the creation rather than the creator. Economics, which focuses on the World Bank. We're headed there. Equality, which focuses on putting everything on an equal level, a contradiction of the word diversity. It's more intimidation to make any sound objective judgment. And you have a world of snitches. Wow. Paul says, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as labor pains upon the pregnant woman and they shall not escape. First Thessalonians 5, 3. Just as God reconciled the nation of Israel to himself from the Babylonian captivity, he will reconcile her to himself at the second coming. Listen to Paul, Romans eleven twenty five. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened in Israel until the fullness of the Gentile comes in, the full number of people to be saved before the rapture. Do not confuse the nation of Israel with the church, as so many do today. Churches and universities. The nation of Israel is the adulterer's wife, put away for a while until the remnant of Israel is reconciled to God at the end of the tribulation period. The church is a virgin bride looking for a wedding comprised of Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus, which will be removed at the rapture prior to the seven-year tribulation. The Bible does not teach replacement theology that the church is now Israel and God has nothing to do with Israel again. I reject that. The majority of churches and universities teach that. Paul the Apostle says in Romans eleven twenty six to 28, listen carefully. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That's Israel. For this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the father. You're going to believe a PhD or Jesus Christ in the Bible. This was the restoration of the people of Israel. These three prophecies in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Wow. They comprise of the castigation of the enemies of Israel, the declaration of the coming of the Messiah of Israel, and the restoration of the people of Israel. All can be verified apart from the Bible.
But the Bible is the most accurate, the most trustworthy of all. Lord, thank you for your grace and love your goodness. Deal with our hearts and we thank you for your word. Pray for those who are listening over the radio, Lord. And Father, for those here and over the internet, that you would just speak to their hearts if they don't know you. They would call upon the name of your son to be forgiven and be reconciled to him, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Right where you sit, wherever you are out there in the world, right now, or the internet, or here. If you see yourself as a sinner, as the grace of God, this is your prayer of repentance. And he's going to forgive you if you truly believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.